This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Doomed Installation GMCs. Rewatching Films. Sir Francis and Lady Isabel Burton. And the Upper Canada Coup. Cards and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cards and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, there's no players because it's time for the GM to get down to business. And by business, I mean frantically writing names in a notebook. <laughs> As we've done before, we're riffing GMCs, Game Master Characters, for a purpose that you might enjoy. Uh, Robin, you have the setup. Why don't you set right. us up? So we're creating a set of characters for your classic installation under threat scenario, of which the uh, exemplar is uh, the thing from another world. Uh, and then again, of course, the remake the thing or, uh, you know, at least uh, one, if not two Doctor Who episodes every season. And so mm-hmm. this is the classic thing where the player characters are coming in from outside. Uh, they are entering this closed environment where there are a limited number of people. Uh, likely they are uh, scientists or possibly they're soldiers in an outpost, uh, but they uh, have some sort of reason for being isolated in the middle of nowhere in something that just happens to be a trap for a monster or other malign force to start uh, mowing its way through them. And so uh, we're going to do that classic scenario and uh, we're going to then come up uh, with the uh, characters you need to populate it. And so I've sort of selected uh, the usual set of uh, of uh, names to go with the characters, and then we're going to create characters. And we can sort of assume either a, uh, a techno-thriller or even sort of a near-future or spaceship-y uh, sort of background for them. So let's kind of leave exactly what sort of installation uh, they're at. Although I guess we'll have to decide, let's say scientific. So it's a group yeah. of people at a at a scientific installation and uh, we're going to have to create the characters that you need to make that uh, story work. And so the first most obvious character you need is the putative commander who is either incompetent at being hunted by a monster or gets eaten by the monster right away. And so the first name on our list is China Beckham. And so uh, how are we going to fill her out 
as the uh, person who starts out as a leader, but of course has to cede authority to the PCs so that they can then have agency to investigate and uh, and solve problems. Well, I think that, like you say, the leader is ineffectual because if they were effectual, who'd need the PCs? Um, but uh, China Beckham, I, I think we want to, because remember, in all of these, from the, the thing on the way down, there's the military that want to shoot it and the scientists that want to examine it and touch it and talk to it and test it and generally get themselves killed even more rapidly. And I think we'll make China, like you say, she's the commander, so let's make her the military commander. And uh, the thing about this is because it's a scientific installation, uh, she doesn't really have... Uh, a lot of uh, military backup and a lot of hardware. So she's there. She has authority, but no real power to do anything. Uh, she's maybe a captain because Captain Beckham is a, is a cool uh, thing to say. Um, uh, but she doesn't have uh, so much authority that she can be Colonel Beckham and be a real jerk and get eaten. She's Captain Beckham. And maybe even she's good at captaining, but she doesn't have any resources. There's no other soldiers or there's maybe one other soldier on the base. And so she doesn't have the ability to outflank a, a, a monster from the id, uh, goodness sakes. And so uh, because she's a relatively junior officer, she may happily, gratefully uh, yield to the character's authority just because they, they're doing something now, which, as Patton reminds us, is better than the right idea tomorrow. Uh, right. And depending on how sympathetic she is or... Uh... You can sort of create a couple of, you know, if she's a an insecure martinet who makes a terrible mistake, she's the one who gets eaten. Or you can have a build in an option depending on what the players do and what they, how how much they bond with her. It's possible that they see her as a more sympathetic figure, and then perhaps uh, she just gets uh, horribly wounded or injected with the monster venom or something, so that she is then a uh, a casualty that they have to protect. But she can uh, begin by presenting as an insecure martinet, and then they discover. That that's uh, to to cover over her lack of resources on this base and her great worry that this base is undermanned and under resourced. Uh, the next name on our list is Zachary Clemens, and the next obvious character that you have to have uh, for this is the uh, liaison character, the uh, person who is willing to convey information to the PCs and to be the early character willing to trust and uh, and help them. Uh, so that suggests that he is uh, possibly the new guy or possibly or the grad student. <laughs> right. Uh, or possibly uh and this may be an and or the one who sort of gets has an idea of what's going on or knows the secret or uh is uh, you know initially the one that they're not listening to and so that they can not only be a conduit for information but then the players can then uh have uh, the moment of uh, no, you've got to listen to Zachary. He's the one who's mm-hmm. figured out uh, where the monster came from or, or what its uh, weakness is or, or so forth. And so uh, in addition to grad student, you want to come up with some uh, sort of uh, defining thing that turns that trope into uh, something uh, that is, you know, less obviously on the beam. So he might, uh, uh, you could have him be trying to, you know, redeem himself from, uh, the mistake he made at his uh, last installation, or you can uh, have him sort of overcoming uh, some other uh, personal struggle, uh, something that you're adding to him to make him uh, less obviously just that trope. I mean, he could be he could be the guy that that knows about the Norwegian team that has uh, found a similar anomaly uh, in previous research, but he's also the guy who screwed up the research at the last university that he was at and that's why he's off here in the uh arctic slash or, uh, low earth orbit wherever 
Um, and so he's like, well, there's a Norwegian team that's done this. And everyone's like, oh, you and the Norwegian team. And so it's a thing where he knows something, but every other authority figure also knows there's no one should listen to Zachary. And he's really just there to do data entry because he's not actually a, a very uh, credible thinker. Um, and, and so it's, it, it can be, or, or you can actually have him, uh, pile the Norwegian team in with a bunch of stuff that even the characters recognize as, is malarkey where he's like, you know, you know, in uh, 1890, um, uh, Baron Reichenbach had a, a theory of odic force. Maybe that would explain it. You're like, what are you insane? That's nonsense talk. And, or, um, uh, I think it's the hollow earth is doing it. And so you, you can recognize that Zachary is a, an unreliable provider of, um, uh, data, but because he's, a crazy person, he immediately believes that NP, that uh, player characters should have a role in this instead of be, um, uh, uh, sent off to get their doctorates before they do anything. Right. And so that makes him more of the, the red herring character. He makes a point of connecting with them, provides them some information, but he also, uh, gives them a misleading idea that they then have to uh, prove wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next name on our list here, we have Nikki Hinahosa. And, uh, I think about this time that we need, uh, another character that makes this kind of story work is the antagonist character, the one who causes problems and is uh, themselves an obstacle that the PCs have to overcome. What sort of obstacle does she represent, Ken? I think um, I think you can, I mean, certainly one of the very classics in this is there's, like I say, there's the two classics that Howard Hawks gifted us, the soldiers and the scientists. There's the immortal corporate guy who wants to monetize it. And that's the Paul Reiser character, obviously from aliens. I think Nikki's from corporate. I think Nikki is from the donor. I think Nikki is from, uh, the, the, the Dean's office. Some, some, uh, aspect where it's like, wait, this could be patentable. If we can, uh, put id monsters into a cream, then that would be awesome or something like that. And so Nikki is maybe trying to keep samples alive that shouldn't be kept alive or, uh, sell everyone out for licensing rights, something like that. I think Nikki's from corporate. I think Nikki right. is, uh, has got a, a financial agenda, uh, either for the university or for the company that's sponsoring it and, uh, doesn't really want to hear your notions of we need to destroy it and, and, uh, salt the earth. Do you realize what that will do to the budget? Right. Now, as soon as the players realize that Nikki is from corporate, they're going to lock her in a closet. So right. the, uh, the two ways to go at that. One is that she's undercover from corporate, mm-hmm. which is, uh, that she appears to be a member of the, the research team and perhaps is even competent, but it turns out that she, uh, has been, uh, covertly inserted into the team. And so that you then have to discover as part of the investigation that she is actually uh, from corporate. And that is why she's keeping the sample or sending the, uh, deadly information back to the base. Another, uh, spin you can put on, on it though is that she is from altruistic corporate, right? She's working for an NGO and they, uh, she genuinely believes that the, uh, essence of the monster is something that can be used to end this terrible plague, uh, up in the, uh, the asteroid belt and that she has, uh, you know, every positive reason to think, well, you can't just kill the monster. We've got to, uh, capture it. And, uh, and make sure that, uh, you know, we save some of its DNA so it can be used in this serum and you can go. Yeah, I mean, if you, you, you could, you could certainly combine that and it's like, um, look, uh, sure, we'll make billions on it, but it's clean energy. It'll solve global warming or, you know, it'll, it'll cure, um, uh, malaria or whatever. Uh, if you provide a genuinely, you know, good in the world motive for corporate to be, uh, nickel and diming everybody that, that does help. I think another thing you can do with Nikki is to make them actually really useful in a fight. 
Like, uh, she went to a lot of those outward bound corporate bonding camps and leadership camps and she, you know, um, uh, does martial arts and, uh, she's a, a good shot. And so it's just that, you know, China Beckham aside, and maybe even not if China was straight West Point and never saw a day in service, uh, in the field, maybe Nikki is actually the combat monster to the extent that there is one amongst these chumps. And so you kind of have to give Nikki a gun and let, her ro- roam around the lab freely because you are shorthanded. You don't have enough people because the id monster has been eating everybody else. So we have a, another name up on the list, Viru Mishra. And uh, before we decide uh, uh, who she is and what she's doing, I guess we need to mentally uh, go through our list of tropes and see if we've uh, got uh, anything left before we just go to... Uh, we don't have the scientist, uh, the main scientist. The scientist. And so uh, she's the one who uh, was... Uh, she's the lead on the project. And, uh, she, uh, knows what's putatively going on, but, uh, has a reason not to necessarily cooperate. It's not the same as, uh, corporates, but just, uh, she believes in her science. She's sure she's right. And, uh, she, uh, possibly doesn't want to get scooped by, uh, uh, some other research team. There's maybe, uh, you know, that it's known there's another installation, uh, that the, the Norwegians are still working on this. So she has a reason mm-hmm. to keep the information close to her belt. And she's also just, uh, sort of untrusting, and so you have to overcome her reluctance by demonstrating your competence. Well, she's had to she's had to fight twice as hard for everything she's got. She's a woman in a very male dominated world of anomalyology, right? So uh, she has she has a, a legitimate belief that people won't listen to her, and that she has to sort of um, uh, keep everything tied up and and not trust people because she has been ripped off and and treated badly in the past. Um, if we decide that uh, Nikki Hineosa is uh, from corporate but isn't a combat monster, uh, we still need the uh, sort of uh, jarhead, boots-on-the-ground, fighty character who, of course, is the one who gets eaten. And so I'm sorry we've come to the, uh, you on the list, Hollingsworth Yun, but I'm afraid it looks like uh, uh, you are going to be the guy who's the uh, first to get liquefied or, or eaten or uh, uh, sucked into another uh, dimension. And so uh, we want to make, uh, if your ideology, as it often is in a Doctor Who episode, is that uh, the soldiers and the people with guns are uh, are, are misguided, uh, you want to make him a full-on jarhead who gets uh, uh, eaten as a moral lesson. Or uh, if you're not doing that trope, you can make him uh, a sympathetically heroic guy who's doing his duty and goes off and says, don't you worry, this is my job. And then, uh, and then that gives you, uh, not the, uh, hit of moral certitude that you would get in a Doctor Who, but rather the jolt of, of sympathy of, oh, this poor guy, uh, he sacrificed himself for all of us. We'd better make this, uh, uh, then, uh, really count. And so in that case, you want to, you know, have the option for the investigators to look through his file and, uh, see his exemplary life of service and, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, his family back home and all of those things that, uh, make you want to, uh, reverse. Avenge him. Yes, exactly. Um, another, uh, twist you can put on Hollingsworth is if you don't have a, another soldier, if you don't want to make him the, the jarhead or the combat monster, maybe he's the, the, the techie, sort of the, he, he could be a PC almost because he's the guy who's like, I could build a flamethrower with the stuff in this lab type guy. And so Hollingsworth is sort of a very player identification character. Um, and, and so when he goes off and, and gets eaten, first of all, it gives you, as you say, that that note of, oh, man, that's a shame, poor Hollingsworth. Uh, but also it gives you the, oh, he can even eat PCs. That's not good. Right. Um, uh, 
And so, uh, uh, one of the, one of the things that, that I think with a lot of these, uh, uh, scientist types around, uh, there is going to be someone who is sort of the, the, the player identification character as opposed necessarily to the player character identification character that they'll be like, Oh, I could be playing Hollingsworth. I could be Hollingsworth young. I'm a nerd who likes to build flamethrowers. And look at that. I just got eaten by a monster. And, and if not all of your players showed up for the first episode, he can be the one who, duplicates the abilities of the absent player and then of the absent player right yes <laughs> oh well uh a syrian epigraphy i studied that in school before switching to high energy physics <laughs> uh next we have kina markley and uh, uh again we're getting down the list i'm sorry people down at the bottom of the list you're getting uh eaten or, or liquefied sooner uh but i think we need a uh uh, a sort of a MacGyver character, a uh, an engineer, a physical techie, and uh, she's right. the one. If who it's can not have... poor Hollingsworth, yeah. it's going to be Kina. Yeah, so she's got all the stuff in her lab that uh, all the bits and pieces of disassembled uh, robotics that you're going to need to put together uh, in order to uh, create your uh, uh, weapon. That just hap- you know, once you've learned what the weakness of the creature is, you got to build the thing that throws that weakness at the creature. And it's uh, a keenest stuff that you have to uh, go through and figure out and, and put together. But she's conveniently left you all of the pieces that you need for your, your flame thrower or your uh, DNA deliquifier. Right. Or your, or your id scrambler. And then Lita Schmidt, do we, do we know what uh, her role is except to be to the, uh, another grad student who gets eaten? Yeah, does, I think we're, down, have we're a- far enough down the list that we just want to, she's on there to remind us that you need a couple of floaters. Uh, right. As a, uh, she might literally wind up a floater, but, uh, this is just a character that you have, uh, a name for and maybe a physical quirk. And then you just, uh, you will then in the course of the adventure, when you realize that you didn't think of somebody or the, uh, you know, the players look around and go, well, what's that person doing? Uh, you know, one more person who can fit in and do something in this scenario that you didn't. Well, like, if only we had someone who could operate this telescope and then Lita raises her hand and says, I was at Mount Palomar. Yeah, post grad. Um, I, I think one of the things we can also uh, think about is, I mean, we've got a lot of very appealing characters. Uh, maybe not China, certainly not Viru, possibly Nikki, definitely Zachary Hollingsworth, Kina Lita. Look at love interests. I mean, that's one of the things. Even if you don't necessarily want to do the thing where the PC looks across the Quonset hut and says, "I gotta break me off a piece of that Hollingsworth." Um, uh, have a, have a thing where there's a spark. There's some interest that maybe if you'd met under other circumstances, this could be something, um, maybe not full on kissing because obviously we don't kiss in doctor who because it's a crippled show for children, but, um, uh, maybe we could have, you know, something going on and there's a, another level of tension or, uh, if the creature plays on emotional uh, vulnerabilities as opposed to merely physical ones, uh, possibly the expression of love, uh, both exposes you to the creature and maybe gives you the power to withstand it because in order to keep it from eating, uh, a, a cute Kina with that smudge of uh, grease on her nose, you're going to double up and, and spend those hero points and really go after that id monster with a flamethrower. And sometimes you sometimes see in doctor who is that there will be a love relationship between the uh, non-regulars and that is something that gives them uh, a uh, another sympathetic factor that makes you root for the heroes to save them so right. you know uh, Lita and Viru uh, may be on the uh, verge of a, a budding romance and that humanizes 
of Viru and again makes you want to uh, do something other than just, uh, uh, shove her in the airlock. Right. Or, or maybe, um, uh, Nikki is, um, uh, the girlfriend of Zachary. And since you're using, um, uh, Zachary as your, as your entry in, you can't be shutting Nikki up in the closet, even though she's from corporate because Zachary's totally into her and he'll let her out of the closet. Worst case scenario. Uh, right. Well, I think we've got a fine set of GMCs ready to be, uh, attacked by a monster. And so before we're attacked by a monster, I think it's time for us to check out what's waiting on the other side of this commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time once more to don our pith helmets and put together some pithy observations because we are in a particularly exploratory edition of the History Hut at the behest of Patreon backer Martin Runfist, who wishes to know about Sir Richard Francis Burton and his wife, Isabel Lady Burton. And this one, Ken, is going to challenge the limits of a 15-minute segment because... Word yes. Yes. Burton, <laughs> who uh, lived from 1821 to 1890 and was uh, particularly active in the middle of the 19th century, uh, is described by Wikipedia as... An explorer, a geographer, a translator, a writer, a soldier, an orientalist, a cartographer, an ethnologist, a spy, a linguist, a poet, a fencer, and a diplomat who, it is said, spoke no less than 29 different languages and uh, had at least... Uh, Including the international language of love. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, he, you could also add a pioneering sexologist yeah. uh, on, on top of that one as well. Uh, he is... Uh, Famed in literary circles is the uh, translator of A Thousand and One Nights. Uh, and he uh, went a lot of places, uh, including a bunch of places he wasn't supposed to go. Uh, so where where do you uh, put together the greatest hits of uh, uh, Richard Burton and his accomplishments? I mean, I, I, I think that the two things that most people know about Burton is that he found the source of the Nile, which he, in fact, did not. That was uh, Speak. Uh, that actually found it, although Speak didn't notice it. Um, 
and that he translated. Well, you know, uh, noticing is 90% of finding. Yeah, noticing is 90% of discovering. And um, uh, that he translated uh, The Thousand and One Nights. And that he definitely did. Um, and more importantly, he annotated The Thousand and One Nights. And as fun as his translation is, and it's the one that is on my bookshelf today in a lovely 1920s, 30s edition, although I suspect it's a reprint of that edition. Um, even more fun are all of the petty-fogging Victorian minutia that he jams into the footnotes, uh, which is glorious. Uh, he's, he is one of the great footnoters of our day. So if you get a chance to run across any of the, the books that he translated, um, dive into those footnotes and they will take you to an even more magical land than the land of the Arabian Nights, I feel. Uh, he is a uh, he also, though, in addition, um, translated uh, the Kama Sutra, and in his travel books, there is a great deal of appreciation of the local uh, ladies, uh, and, and he was very broad-minded, I guess we would say. Um, he had sort of opinions. He thought he would he would tell you which uh, people in Ethiopia were the prettiest, but he liked all the all the ladies in Ethiopia. He thought they were all super special and great. He was not. I mean. One one can probably not avoid being a big old racist if you're a Victorian Britisher, but he goes farther to avoid it than most people do, while he's also going plenty far uh, to lots of other people. And then the way that you can have – he then retires to become an NPC, which is even better about him. Uh, After he's done doing all of his exploring, he becomes a diplomat starting in about 1861, and he just sort of serves as consul at various places. So he's in – uh, tropical Africa at Fernando Po. He's in Damascus. He's in Brazil and he's in Trieste in Italy, which means that you can be out fighting, uh, the agents of the Kaiser and, uh, battling theosophists and digging up relics and you run in and, uh, you bust into the British consul's office and look at that. It's Richard Francis Burton and he can translate that inscription for you. And he knows a similar case from Persia that he can tell you that will cast light on things. He's the GM's friend is our Richard Francis Burton. Um, so that alone is the reason to have him in your hip pocket. As a game master, I feel. Right. And, uh, of course, the other half of the question is, uh, Isabel, Lady Burton, how does she uh, feature into our uh, gameable narratives? Well, um, Isabel wrote the biography of Burton in which she downplayed, and I think it's uh, – we should not be mad at Isabel – downplayed some of his pioneering sexological research, certainly his firsthand uh, bits of it. She uh, is of the Mary Shelley belief that when your famous husband dies, it is your job to make him out to be a literal paragon, a paladin, a shining knight, the best guy ever, and uh, curse you for uh, dampening his name with your filthy mouth. And so her version of his uh, translations perhaps uh, leaves stuff out and um, uh, do not, in fact, uh, in some cases leave them around at all. She burns a lot of his notes uh, later in life, and one suspects that those are where he's uh, very accepting of uh, man-other fella love, which he is in some of these chapters, it is thought. we And we know this because the original books that he's translating had those chapters. We know that Burton did the research, as it were, but we just don't know how in-depth he went and and did the research because Isabel was all about making sure that his reputation was uh, relatively unstained. And then she was also a uh, a, a poetess in addition to all of her other uh, gifts. And uh, she 
um, uh, was sort of his, you know, help me, uh, right hand, etc. And her, her parents said, don't marry Richard Francis Burton. Look at that guy. And, uh, they were right. And that probably didn't help anything at all. Um, but she was also very interested in, uh, the Middle Eastern culture and travel and all those other things in her own right. And one does not know if absent being married to Richard Burton, she would have been able to do uh, some of the things that she did, but she certainly accompanied him to on the the more genteel parts of his expeditions in Syria and places like that that were uh, not necessarily the wilds of Africa and whatnot. Right, and uh, she designed the uh, the tomb in which uh, her uh, husband, and then uh, after her death, uh, she uh, uh, occupies to this uh, day. It's in the uh, shape of a Bedouin tent. And uh, if you uh, want to start imagining a, a world of the 19th century pulp thrills, uh, certainly uh, there must be a, a secret chamber in that that leads down to uh, the uh, the archive where, you know, it turns out that, you know, the, the stuff she was concealing from public view was uh, not just uh, for the purposes of uh, uh, making her husband uh, seem, uh, you know, better behaved on his uh, road trips, but also... There is the uh, the deep eldritch secret that uh, she and uh, and uh, Burton were uh, uh, protecting the world from, uh, which uh, I, I guess uh, the player characters discover a break in and and they find out that the whatever this horrible fact is has gotten loose into the world and and that's what you get. Into. Or they're doing a sort of a a, a Dan Brown um, uh, a puzzle hunt and they get to Burton's tomb and they have to figure out the the code and the and the thing to push it and then they get into the archive. And then are attacked by the agents of uh, desperately unsexy theosophy that Burton battled his whole life. Right. Um, he was. Al- he's also referred to in the list of occupations as a spy. What was his spying activity? I mean, in that era, um, a spy was basically just any Englishman abroad, and or anyone in some cases anyone who got paid off by the foreign service abroad. When he would, he would travel, he would you know take a look at all the local fortifications and whatnot, write them up and, and shoot them off to the, the war office. He was, of course, in the army um, uh, when he was in uh, India, um, uh, served in um, uh, the uh, Bombay Native Infantry with the um, uh, East India Company, and um, had a lot of uh, experiences there, none of them particularly uh, thrilling and heroic. Uh, it was more just uh, a thing to do. And he worked for the political department of the East India Company, as did most uh, guys who had a gift for languages. And that, again, meant that you would get sent off to some uh, sheikdom or, or Raja state over the hill and ask around about, are there any Russians here? And uh, how many cannons rounding up would you say you have? And things like that. And then send the letters back to the uh, East India Company. There, this is the era before there is a formal British Secret Service at all. So um, the political service of the East India Company is one of the ways in which the British government eventually found things out. Um, there is, the question is, to what extent are his explorations in uh, East Africa also about uh, putting a thumb in the eye of the French versus just finding the, um, uh, the source of the Nile? But finding the source of the Nile is super useful if you want to, say, run Egypt, which the British very much wanted to do eventually. So... Six of one? Yeah, clearly a multitask there. So we can see right. that his character sheet is so completely full that he is clearly a solo character. That he has yeah, every he's ability. He's Doctor Who. Uh, he's, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and he also tried to learn the language of monkeys while you're doing fantasy Burton. Right. 
Uh, well, uh, I, I bet learning the, uh, it's the monkeys who still remember the secret under the tomb. So right, yeah. if you can learn that I mean, language. And the, the, and the notion that, um, uh, I think and, we've and talked about. And they talk for bananas, so you're good. Yeah. Well, we've, we've, we've had many, many monkey related and ape related, uh, 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 angles into the elliptony hut. So, uh, whether he's keeping the Barbary apes happy on Gibraltar or, um, uh, uh learning the secrets of, uh, the Kaiser's plan to breed man apes, who can say? But the fact that he can talk to monkeys, an un an unheralded thing on his character sheet. The, the GM's like monkey, really? You have that? He's like learned it. <laughs> well, in India. I guess I have to give you the monkey sidekick, right? <laughs> well, I, I think it's time for us to. Uh, I, I feel like I need to go and do some exploring now because uh, you know this this resume is making me feel like a piker. So I think it's time for us to uh, part the mists of this uh, upcoming commercial and see uh, what is waiting for us on the other side. historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect this installation from the dread thing outside with such Patreon supporters as... Jeff Cars, Jean-Francois Paradis. Joshua Brumley. Michael Bowman. And Paul and Cleo Bushland. The whirring of the projector, the comforting vibrations of the DCP, tell us that we are once more in that most cinematic of huts, in fact, the cinema hut. And we're here to talk about uh, movies, and in this case, the uh, pleasures uh, not just of watching films, but of re-watching them. The mysteries and pleasures of the rewatch are our topic today. And so uh, I think there's a number of ways to attack the difference between uh, seeing a film for the first time and seeing it uh, uh, later again and why you would do that and what you get out of repeat viewings. But I guess the obvious uh, way to kick this off is to talk about uh, films that we find compulsively uh, rewatchable. So, Ken, what uh, what are some of your uh, uh, films that you uh, either deliberately go back to again and again or find yourself sucked into if you happen across them while... Uh, flipping channels. I mean, I think that, I think that to an extent, some of the things that I compulsively rewatch are 
being rewatched. Like, for example, the Bourne trilogy, which I, in fairness, can compulsively rewatch in every sense. But I sort of did a lot of my compulsive rewatch when I was doing research for Knights Black Agents. So I would watch the Bourne trilogy and I would say, oh, look, Bourne did a cool thing. I have to make sure there's a rule for doing that cool thing in my game. And that is sort of the research rewatch, which is not quite the same thing as, say, the Ocean's Eleven rewatch, which is literally, I, I only have to think of, I don't know, Elliot Gould. And suddenly I'm like, I should rewatch Ocean's Eleven. And then I just fall right back into that comforting Holmes and, um, uh, uh, Soderbergh uh, ambiance and emerge uh, an hour and a half later, happy as a clam with no work being done. And, and I, I think that Ocean's Eleven is the sort of comfort rewatch in which you might also put, say, Ghostbusters or Big Trouble or other films that uh, you're rewatching maybe more for the uh, animal pleasure of it than necessarily the intellectual stimulation that you get from rewatching even movies that are also very enjoyable, but that Maybe you're watching on a, a more film critical level as opposed to, gosh, I do enjoy going back to Vegas with uh, George Clooney and and, uh, and Robin stuff. That'd be fun. Right. Because it's a big difference between whether you're asking yourself, what's my take on this mm-hmm. or how does this work versus, oh, I, I just got to let this all uh, wash over me. So right. uh, some of my obvious ones, uh, in addition to Ocean's Eleven, Goodfellas, of course, I'm right. uh, yeah. part of. Part of that gang who, uh, uh, you know, if it's on TV, I might then go put on the DVD of it instead of watching it on TV, but right. I, I can get, I can watch that again and again. And part of the compulsiveness of, uh, Goodfellas is I think, let's start to head toward a thesis here is the thing that I think makes things, uh, rewatchable or one of the elements of a very rewatchable movie is that it, its transitions have a sort of momentum that keep pulling you through, right. which is why you yeah. don't. Uh, hit the challenge and uh, Goodfellas. There's that eternal mystery of why does voiceover work in Scorsese movies <laughs> when yeah. when it doesn't in virtually any other circumstance. And this uh, and the Goodfellas is the uh, one is the apotheosis of that. It works even better than all of the other ones that also work. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that I think is the way that they take you through scenes. Uh, but it's every time I've tried to come up with a principle of how uh, the voiceover narration uh, works there and, and how you could apply it to anything not made by Scorsese, it always kind of fails. Mm-hmm. And maybe one day I will come up with the formula of, of why why that works, but uh, not so far. Not today. Um, today will not be that day. Right. One of the things about that, though, is that it, it, it pulls everything together. It's the it's the rug that pulls the room together, to, to name another... To name another compulsive rewatch. Rewatch, or to, to allude to it, I guess. Of course, it's a big Lebowski for you playing along at home. Um, and uh, But but I think what, the, what carries you through that is is the, the way all the disparate scenes are yoked together and the way that it nails different parts of it to, together. And the, the granddaddy of all of those, uh, of the, the transition film, is Citizen Kane, uh, which, again, takes you to a whole lot of places, right? It uh, it like Goodfellas and and uh, it, it really goes a bunch of places. That mm-hmm. a a film that is sort of a a quiet interior drama with long takes and uh, you know that is just sort of an acting duel is not going to necessarily uh, draw you in, in in that way. Yeah, I, I think story momentum is part of rewatching 
because it's like a cliffhanger when you're reading a a, a, a good uh, cliffhangery novel. You know, every scene ends on a "oh, then what next" type thing, as opposed to a sort of a satisfying "ah, that was great." Let's have a cigarette and think about that scene moment, which is great when you're watching a film uh, for the first time, certainly, and maybe even for the second time. But to be a compulsive rewatcher, I think you're right. I think there has to be some momentum. I don't know if there is a a film that is. That is, uh, uh, I don't want to say languid because then everyone will cross our, our, this segment off their, um, uh, film festival, uh, list. But, but a film that's got a more contemplative pace is harder, I think, to get into a rewatch of. Although Sheila, I think, can rewatch Local Hero forever. If I, if you put that on a loop DVD somehow, she would probably never get out of the chair. So some movies are very much about, you're very much in love maybe with the moment you saw that movie the first time, or maybe with the sensation that that long, beautiful uh, uh, take allows you to drift into. Because while I'm certainly capable of drifting into, you know, a car chase in Moscow, I'm not like, you know, transported to Moscow by it. Uh, when I'm watching the board movies, I'm excited by the car chase, but I'm ready to be hurtled into the next uh, uh, super action sequence. And it's not the same effect, I think, as wanting to go to that little Scottish village or whatever and, and watch the oil company kind of not work. There are a couple of movies that uh, evoke a strong sort of emotional tone and sense of place, but still go a bunch of places that are not uh, conventional genre films that I also find super rewatchable. And one of them is my favorite film, period, Eight and a Half by Fellini, mm-hmm. and also La Dolce Vita, the uh, film that he made prior to that. And uh, there are uh, bits of those that are very frenetic and then other bits that are slow and contemplative. Uh, but I think part of uh, what makes those work, again, is that, like Wells, uh, Fellini goes a lot of places over the course of uh, uh, his films and, uh, and takes you... Uh, through a whole range of emotions, and you meet up with a whole bunch of uh, characters. So, and La Dolce uh, Vita has got such an insanely great sense of place to it. Anyway, I mean, oh, yeah. that entirely conjured up, and probably even at the time, artificial Rome of what 1960, I guess. I mean, that's you, you just want to move there uh, when you're watching that movie, much less see the movie again. I mean, you want to go live in that movie, like right on that fountain. You want to have an apartment. It's one of those ones that makes you wonder, is this documenting a scene or is this creating the scene that is, that it is documenting? Right. I mean, and that, and that I think with a lot of movies, um, like I can, I can rewatch Lost in Translation a great deal, which is another sort of slower, more contemplative movie. And in sort of building this sort of layers of dream to get you completely sucked into this weird, fictive, sort of uh, dis- dissociated, unreal Tokyo. I, I, th- I think, but I think that, you know, for me, a lot more of the charm of rewatching that is just sort of relearning how good an actor Bill Murray can be when he bothers and not so much there. I mean, I like the part where I'm in dream Tokyo, but I, I'm watching that. And I think maybe this leads to the second kind of rewatch where you kind of want to see how the trick was done. Like your bit with the voiceover in Goodfellas. I want to see how John Ford put together the searchers. And then I want to also see how Quentin Tarantino rips it off in, in glorious bastards, two movies that I can watch over and over again, just because it's like, Oh, there's a bit that was super clever at the time that I didn't get. It's like, you look at a beautiful cabinet and you can just look at it for two minutes or you can look at it for a lifetime and say, oh, there's a little naiad down in the scroll work and I didn't see that. Or look how clever that was joined without any nails. And you just are admiring the craftsmanship constantly, uh, saying nothing about the art involved and the sort of, you know, grander artistic statements, just the masterly way the film is put together. And some of that is 
when we were talking about the momentum movies, it's how the plot is put together and how the story is put together. But some of it is just, oh, look at that shot. I didn't notice he comes in from the left in that shot, not the right. That's so clever or whatever, right? Right. Uh, because there are, uh, there are two Michael Curtiz movies that I will watch again and again, and they're a contrast in why you watch them. And the f- first one is Casablanca. Obviously. And that's one of those films where you just watch that and go, oh. Every moment in this film is perfect. This moment is right. perfect. This moment, I see what if, this is. If doing. you, if you, if my argument is, if you do not want to rewatch Casablanca, you are a replicant, and Harrison Ford should shoot you. <laughs> that would have been a cheaper version of that test. Yes, um, and I think owned by Warner Brothers in both cases, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, uh, the other one is White Christmas, uh, which was Curtis's <laughs> greatest hit, and. On paper, should not be rewatchable at all. Yeah, well, kind of um, a- certainly uh, on this podcast, it's only half rewatchable. I've, I've watched right. White Christmas, I think, twice, and I I feel very full of White Christmas. I don't feel a need to see it again. Right, and it, it makes sense to me that you would say that because it's a corny, holiday, glossy, Technicolor musical. Uh, but for me, there's just something about it that I can never pin down. I think part of it is that the brightly colored Christmas thing is a layer covering up the melancholy of the post-war period because it's all about, uh, you know, creating a tribute to the, uh, a wartime commander that they're all uh, bonded with. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the sort of, you know, the hidden well of emotion behind uh, something that should just be disposable junk that, uh, you know, continues to, to drop because, you know, and it's not even, you know, you were, were talking earlier about films with, Marcello Mastriani or Bill Murray or, uh, or, or Humphrey Bogart. Well, this has got, you know, people who it's Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and mm-hmm. Rosemary Clooney, right? The, none of these are, are uh, big stars and they are charming in their own various ways. But, uh, there's, it, there's just something about that film and the way that it all comes together that, uh, that makes that, uh, very rewatchable. And of course, that's, you know, coupled with a particularly, um, Hollywood season. And it was also such a, such, I mean, I, I don't want to diss it, but it was kind of a crass project. It was like, oh my God, Holiday Inn, that song is so great and everyone loves it. Let's make a movie just about the song. If there's no greater artistic goal for the movie at all. It, you know, Curtis just, you know, hammered it out in the glorious way that he hammered out everything, but it's just not a, it's not a movie like The Third Man, which is one of my ultimate rewatchables, which has got everything that we've talked about, by the way, in it. Uh, the, the pace, the acting, the, the crazy camera work to pay attention to. But it's also about a lot of stuff. It's got a deepness, even though it's based on kind of a, a throwaway Graham Greene plot. But it's got a lot of stuff going on about friendship and morality and law and order. White Christmas is a song, is a movie about a lovely song and how people are sad. But, but you know, you can't imagine that Curtiz went into that in the same spirit that Carol Reed went into The Third Man. I mean, it's, it's two different movies on every possible scale. And again, right. I'm not or, dissing or even, that movie. You know, but Casablanca, which, right, yeah. you know, which is every shot in that, you can, yeah, you can see the intention. And here, it's, it's to me anyway, uh, it's lightning in a bottle. Yeah. It's a weird thing that magically was greater than the sum of its parts. And, and again, some of those, some, some movies are just going to be personal to you and it's going to be, what are you, what are you thinking about? There's a, a movie called The Coca-Cola Kid that stars Eric Roberts that Sheila and I both enjoyed a great deal early in our, uh, in our dating life. And it's not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. And it's uh, kind of a weird Australian attempt to take the piss out of Coca-Cola, but it winds up exalting that, which it would bring down. And it has Eric Roberts, who is no one's idea of a charismatic person, although he's strangely, you uh, talk about rewatchable. You can never take your eyes off him because you're worried he's going to kill somebody. And, and directed by uh, Dusan Makoveyev, one of the, the, the weirdest uh, figures of yeah. the uh, of the Czech New Wave. But for some reason, I can rewatch the Coca-Cola Kid all day long, even though, 
or no, uh, even though it's not a not a great movie uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, well, I thought we would get to a discussion of uh, watching things and discovering that they weren't what you thought they were, or, or other sort of weird quirks of rewatching. But I guess uh, in the grand Hollywood tradition. Uh, since we're uh, heading rapidly toward a commercial, uh, we'll have to come back at some point and do a sequel where we examine uh, things you uh, rewatched and, and uh, discovered didn't hold up and other uh, deeper mysteries of, of uh, rewatching. So, so come back and rewatch the rewatch segment in a segment we're going to call Rewatch to the Rewatching. Exactly. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, we are going to look at uh, an event that used to have happened, uh, but didn't anymore, because, Ken, uh, you fixed it. And this was the uh, 1802 uh, coup in which uh, Aaron Burr, Joseph Brandt, and George Clinton, not the Funkadelic George Clinton, but a different one, uh, took over Upper Canada, uh, now known as Ontario, and uh, turned it into a first republic and then a state in the United States of America. Uh, and so uh, before we uh, get into what el- that alternate timeline uh, looked like, uh, we need to uh, look at our cast of characters. So uh, the most famous name here for all of our listeners, especially now that he's in a uh, hip, hip-hop musical is Aaron Burr. Uh, you want to give us the, the brief 101 on Aaron Burr? Okay, Aaron Burr is a, uh, he was a hero of the revolution. He was the vice president of the United States under Thomas Jefferson in the time we're talking about. In between then, he was a senator and a lawyer. He was a big wheel in New York politics, uh, the founder of what eventually became the Tammany Hall a political machine. And uh, of course, he famously shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. He was uh, very, very smart and like many very, very smart people thought he was even smarter. He, uh, <laughs> the number one mistake of smart people. Yes. Yeah, he, um, uh, had a 
exemplary relationship with his daughter and a terrible relationship with his wives, <laughs> like a lot of people, I guess, and um, uh, is a conniver and a conspirator and an oily fellow up one side and down the other. And when he's on your side, that's charming and cool. And when he's not on your side, well, you fight a duel with him, I guess. <laughs> and that's the secret. Um, uh, yeah, in, eight, in uh, 1800, he was famously uh, the vice presidential candidate under Thomas Jefferson. And then when the vote is tied between Jefferson and Adams and it's thrown into the uh, House of Representatives to, to make the choice. Um, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton says, you can't vote for Aaron Burr. He's even more horrible than Thomas Jefferson and swings the delegation of New York to um, uh, uh, Jefferson because Burr, of course, refuses to step down out of the presidency once it becomes thrown to the House of Representatives. And there was a very real chance that Burr would have been voted in as president of the United States in 1800. But thanks to Alexander Hamilton's well-founded suspicions of Burr's moral character, uh, that did not happen. And we got Thomas Jefferson instead. And that's the kind of thing that makes a guy think, well, if you don't like me, I'll conspire to ruin you. And indeed he did. Uh, we don't know the details of his Western conspiracy, uh, which is the one that is most famous for Burr. But this, I guess, was his practice conspiracy, his, his learner's conspiracy, right. if you will. Uh, next, we have George Clinton. He is a uh, this George Clinton is a founding father. He's a governor of New York in 1802. What else do we need to know about him? Not a lot, actually. I mean, the Clintons are a uh, very famous uh, dynasty, if you will, in, in New York politics. He is one of them. He is the uh, governor of New York at this time, which was a very, very uh, powerful position uh, even then, because, of course, he would be the head of, you know, w w the largest state in the North by far. And also he was... Uh, an anti-federalist, which made him a prominent Democrat and sort of the term doesn't mean what it means now, but he was sort of a states rights, civil libertarian type guy, uh, which, again, if you're in charge of a very powerful state, you perhaps believe that the federal government should step back. Uh, he eventually becomes um, uh, vice president of the United States uh, during Jefferson's second term because, of course, Aaron Burr didn't work out. <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, next, we come to uh, Joseph Brandt or. Thyandanega, uh, as he was known, uh, he is, uh, was a, um, a Mohawk, uh, leader. He was, uh, part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which, uh, if your, uh, history books are a little bit older, might refer to as the Iroquois Conspiracy. That was the, the Confederacy. Uh, French name for, for this, uh, group. They refer to themselves as the Haudenosaunee. And he fought with the British. Uh, against uh, the American rebels uh, during the revolution. Uh, but by the time uh, uh, 1802 rolls around uh, and he uh, is in a, a bit of a pickle uh, with his own people, he's beginning to lose support. His overall goal is to create an autonomous uh, region, a nation, a genuine uh, first nation for the Haudenosaunee. Um, but the way he's doing this is he is selling off land holdings. Uh, the uh, government of Upper Canada at this point. Uh, this is before Canadian Confederation, so uh, the uh, former colonies are all separated. They haven't uh, come together yet. Uh, Upper Canada, confusingly, uh, is Ontario. It's the one that's lower on the map, but it's the snootier one, so it's called Upper Canada. Lower Canada is Quebec. So the uh, local officials uh, want to keep the Haudenosaunee uh, uh, beholden to them and having to come and beg for uh, gifts and welfare all the time. Uh, Brant uh, wants them to be uh, autonomous, so uh, he uh, is uh, selling off land, but 
so the local government isn't happy with the autonomy plan. His own people aren't happy with the uh, what they regard as the low, low prices which with which he is uh, selling off their, what they consider their birthright. So he's uh, uh, stuck between the two of them. And so he uh, decides to throw in uh, with this coup, uh, and he writes to uh, George Clinton, the governor of New York, and says, hey, if this doesn't work, uh, is there like a chunk of land that you could arrange for us to have and we'll have an independent First Nation uh, in uh, America? And George Clinton says, yeah, there's a spot near Sandusky, Ohio, that you can go to as a fallback. Um, now, in our timeline, the coup fails, but the Haudenosaunee are not in Sandusky, Ohio. But that's getting ahead of the story, because Ken, what does it look like when these three actually manage to somehow take over Upper Canada. All right. The um, specific thing that has to happen for them to, uh, for, for them to win is that there has to be American support for the uh, Iroquois land titles in Grand River. And the way that that was going to happen is Brant was going to sell any in our history had even begun selling a uh, Grand River land, Grand River being the stretch of Ontario that is uh, Iroquois territory or Haudenosaunee territory uh, to uh, Americans. And the Americans flood up because Americans love land and start settling with Joseph Brant as their um, sort of uh, benefactor. And indeed, in our history, uh, he summons a what he calls a muster. And all of the Haudenosaunee men under arms, which is about 400 people, gather, as do all the white settlers that he's called there as a white militia company, both under the command of Joseph Brandt. And if people were thinking back to the fact that Joseph Brandt was kind of a badass during the revolution, uh, fighting the Americans with such effect that they had to make up uh, pretend atrocity stories to explain why he was such a badass, uh, the Canadians, uh, being a naturally timorous and sleek it lot, were even more worried by 400 <laughs> guys. The upper Canadians. Right. Well, they're the most timorous and sleek. Yeah. That's why they go up uh, like a kitty. And, and so the um, uh, the presence of Brant with white men willing to follow his military orders is a big threat. Uh, 400 Iroquois are not going to threaten anybody necessarily, but 400 Iroquois who can bring more Haudenosaunee up from America, from New York, possibly armed by the governor of New York, who says, go ahead. And if you lose, we've got land in Ohio that is not coincidentally in New York for you to settle. Uh, <laughs> that could have been a thing. Uh, it would have required, obviously, American support for these Americans in Canada saying, uh, Upper Canada, you can't take away their land titles and the threat of a legitimate straight up war, uh, between the United States and Canada or, or and, and Britain to uh, affect that. And that, of course, is where it really falls apart because it's very hard to start a war. Uh, Aaron Burr tries to start several of them and, and isn't very successful. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, what happens is that uh, Joseph Brandt, uh, and this is not a slur on Brandt, uh, his uh, personality changed very much after he lost, I believe it's his wife, uh, died and he became, uh, he sought refuge in alcohol. He's, ne he be, was never one of the stereotypical drunk Indians. Uh, he was a, a statesman and a hero, but when your wife dies, you suffer depression. It's just true. And one of the things that he sought solace in was the bottle and he couldn't handle it uh, particularly well. So he would, uh, blab bits of the conspiracy to people partially as a way to threaten them to get better land prices and uh, uh, and clear land title, which was the real issue. The uh, British government didn't want uh, Joseph Brandt and the uh, Haudenosaunee to own their land. They wanted them to hold it in freehold from the British government. 
Brandt said, if we own it, that means we can sell it to Americans if we want. And the uh, government was like, well, you can't do that. We've seen where that ends, uh, Texas. And, and so, or we can guess. And, uh, and so that was the, the, the sort of the nut of the controversy, but he would, th- uh, threaten an American invasion basically to get the government to do what he wanted. And once there was a real American invasion in potentium, threatening stops being a useful political tool and starts being bad opsec. And that's what actually happened. And once, uh, the, the British government said, are you really going to invade us? Of course, George Clinton is like, no, what are you talking about? Invade uh, Canada? That's not for another 12 years yet. Uh, and, and that's what, uh, basically happened. So, uh, in our world, however, um, Brandt is kept out of a bar, perhaps, or in the alternate world, he's kept out of a bar, or at least kept from, uh, blowing the gaff early. A wave of American settlers comes up, settles in the Grand River. Uh, Brant basically double dog dares Upper Canada to do something about it. Upper Canada, realizing that Brant now controls a large number of militia who will be fighting for their homes, backs off, secures his title to the land, and just as with Texas, enough American settlers uh, flow up to become a American state there in the sort of pointy bit of Ontario. And uh, maybe uh, Toronto stays Canadian because Brant is not trying to go up uh, the lakeshore, but definitely the pointy part of uh, of Ontario is uh, Haudenosaunee and American and then just American because that's how population works. Right. And so presumably the reason that you blew the gaff on uh, Brant and uh, prevented the, the coup from occurring uh, is to protect the invention of the telephone, right? <laughs> uh, no, actually, it's not. Um, the, the reason that I blew the gaff is that because the presence of that American uh, state uh, across the um, uh, Great Lakes proves an irresistible temptation to both sides. Uh, the War of 1812 is a big enough disaster that seeing it happen every 10 or 15 years like clockwork and indeed becoming the thing that brings the British into the Civil War because they are, think they have a chance to get uh, the state of uh, Grand River back. British inv- involvement in the Civil War means the South wins, so we can't have that. Uh, because, of course, uh, Alexander Graham Bell later goes to Brantford, uh, named after Joseph Brant, where he uh, is the place where he confirms that he finally figured out how to uh, create the telephone. He would not have gone there during the alternate history where... No, as a proud Canadian, he would have gone to Toronto. And uh, sometimes the act of creation is dependent on a sort of a quicksilver series of of circumstances and being in the right place at the right time and whether you have your coffee that morning, uh, how well you slept. And so uh, I'm not saying the telephone would not have been invented uh, elsewhere, but it wasn't wouldn't have been invented according to the necessary schedule of our timeline. And so right. uh, as an additional and given benefit, that it was actually invented in Salem, Massachusetts, I, I think that you are your argument is incontrovertible. Uh, Bell confirmed that the uh, the phone was conceived in Brantford in 1874 and born in Boston in 1875. Uh, he wouldn't lie about a thing like that. Yeah. Uh, conception is different from birth. Right, That's but he was saying. not have conceived of it, right. and therefore would not have birthed it uh, if he had, uh, if the Haudenosaunee territory uh, had been independent at that time, or had been an American state. Right. Um. Uh. Yes. Uh, I think that we can agree that Alexander Graham Bell's career would have been interrupted by the victorious South in the Confederacy. Robin, <laughs> keep your eye on the damn prize. <laughs> 
I, I'm trying to give you this extra thing to claim as, as an extra knock-on benefit, and you're just not having it. I'm not having it. I, I, first of all, God bless Alexander Graham Bell. What a lovely figure he is. But uh, inventing the telephone in 1878, not the kind of thing I roll out of bed for. Certainly not the kind of thing that I um, uh, I, I get a, a true hero like Joseph Brandt drunk over. That is not my way. But without the telephone, telecommunications doesn't... Uh, uh, get rolling uh, for another little while. He's blocked on it, and and we wouldn't be communicating here over this crazy internet medium in quite the same way. So without that, Cartus itself would not exist. You wouldn't have a time machine, and a terrible paradox that would result, which would then cause this episode to have to come to an immediate end and go straight to the uh, the end matter of the episode and. Uh, uh, let's just hope that the timeline uh, remains on track for us to have another episode next week at this very same time. Or will it, Ken? Or will, or it? will it? Or will it? Well, maybe leave that question to the expert. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Explore the necessity of preserving this podcast alongside such Patreon backers as Drew Clowry, Jacques de Villiers, Nathan Merritt, Roger Edge, and Anders Moline. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Cthulhu is woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.